this this computer in front of me just feels enormous like but but like you love it right (laughs) doing this setup where we're doing a podcast i'm used to having my little tiny laptop screen in front Mm -hmm. of me and now it's like i there's just a wall between us yep it's a it's like as big as wide (laughs) as the table i can't like i can't believe how big that thing is i mean it's Holy cow. It's basically 15 inch laptop size though. Like the Timbuk my Timbuk 2 bag has a quote unquote 15 inch laptop yeah. sleeve and this fits with room to spare. Well, cuz like most laptops are fi- that are 15 inch are 15.6 mm-hmm. and then I mean this is just it's 0.4 bigger. They just killed the bezels and made it edge to edge. Yeah. But I'm like sliding the- <laughs> oh man. I don't like I don't know where I'd land. I bring my laptop with me almost everywhere. Yeah. And that's why I got a 13 inch. But I like there would be an honest benefit in having more screen space mm-hmm. and we've been doing more editing and more photos. And I, I don't know, like I could see a benefit to having a 16 inch. Yeah. And the question is, could you use 16 inch and an iPad? Could that, could that be your setup? <sighs> That's just more money. I was pricing out the option of doing an iPad the other day. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if I should just like buy an iPad. I mean, if I was going to get one, I'd do Swappa. I wouldn't buy new. No, but still. I mean, like, I would buy an M1 Pro, yeah. but I have to get an M1 because I want to use Resolve. Sure. I haven't figured out the photo workflow. I think I need to sort that out first, make sure yeah. everything works with how I'm going to do it. Have you heard about the hack that people do to get all of Resolve? Yes, I have. That's, that's really funny. <laughs> oh, man. I love it. Yeah, me too. It seems like you can just bring your proxies over. Like, you can throw them in Google Drive and then link your proxies. So, like, does the Resolve for iPad have that path mapping dialogue? I guess it does. Yeah. And yeah, then, and then like, you use the iPad OS stuff to say, like, here's where my proxies are. And mm-hmm. I guess- yeah, I think that you just tell Resolve what files to use. Like, you bring them in or something. I see. Because, like, like, in your media browser in Resolve, you have all those locations on the left. I bet mm-hmm. that's, you can just have Google Drive one of those locations. I see. And then I guess you just map the, I guess proxies are a little different. I don't know. I think that's the workflow though, is to like mismap the proxies over. I can't imagine working on like 500 gigs of footage on an iPad. Yeah, I'm sure that's not how that works. I don't know. It, if you haven't been keeping track, I have spent a lot of money lately trying things out that you don't have to try because you can just learn from my mistakes. And so this might be the one thing that you buy before I do, and then I can watch what you do, and then I'll know what to get. Yeah, I haven't decided if I'm going to do it. Like, I go back and forth because I think it would be really cool for sketching out whatever you what do you call them um storyboards yeah sketching out storyboards and i want to get the ipad version of scrivener so i can like do my scripting Mm -hmm. and then i want to be able to do video editing and photo editing is really nice on photoshop with the ipad so i feel like for all of those i could i I could do more of the stuff i like to do on my mac in a more casual frame and i kind of like the idea of doing that but I've been, I mean, it was like 2013 that I decided that I was going to be, I was like, man, you can be like a small phone, iPad, big computer person, or like you can be a big phone, computer person, or like big phone. You can have like all three. It's like, how do you want, how do I want to live my life? Do I want like a Kindle and a big phone and a small computer or, and I decided that I was going to be a big phone person with a laptop and then I would use the Kindle for reading. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing that's that. And that's that's worked for you for a long time. It's worked for me for a long time, and I've just been happy with not having an iPad. The last iPad I had was the iPad Mini Two. That's a long time ago. Yeah, it was. And so I just sometimes I'll use my wife's iPad, and I'm like, I don't know if I know how to use this anymore because <laughs> I had to like the swipe over stuff, and I like I'll do one of those swipey things because I like I look up how to do it so that I can do the dual screen. I'm like using her iPad and dual screen. She's like, How'd you do that? <laughs> I don't. I still don't know how to do a lot of that stuff. But it's just so confusing the way they the way they set that up. It's very confusing. So. I don't know. I wonder that too, though, because it, it just feels like having the iPad on the couch would be more casual somehow than using a laptop. If I that went with nice. an M1 iPad Pro, 
with 512 gigabytes of storage and a pencil, I'm like $900 in. Yeah, it's, it's a like, lot. It's, it's yeah, not. It's, it's a lot. Know. I think if I was going to spend a thousand bucks on on a thing, it's like, do I put a thousand dollars towards a new laptop? Yeah. Or do I buy an iPad? Because then it'll just it'll push the laptop down the road. And if you have a 13 inch MacBook Air, and which which size iPad would you get? The I wouldn't get the biggest one. I get okay, the 11, 11. 11 inch. Still though, you know, it's like it's just barely smaller. Same size. Yeah, it's basically the same. It's I mean, it's the same thing without a keyboard because it'll have the same freaking processor in it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's literally the same thing. <laughs> just break the screen off that, and you're good to go. Yeah. S- snap it backwards. Smart. Yeah. It, I would just be swap. I would it would it'd be me justifying having this computer and another computer. Only this computer is now an iPad. Mm-hmm. I think if you got a 16-inch MacBook as your next computer, I think the iPad really, really makes sense. Yeah, because then I would never travel with the 16-inch. I would just take the iPad everywhere. Yeah, and so maybe that's another question to think about is could you really live that life? Can you really not take the computer with you? I Man, I have no idea. And it's like Apple doesn't do multi-user, and so I can't. I've been like trying using my wife's iPad of like, could I do this? How would I like doing this? And using it for like editing photos and just a few things here and there. But it's not... Like she's signed in all her accounts. Yeah, so like, you I can't don't set have, it up for you. Yeah, and like that actually kind of makes a big difference as far as how usable it is. Yeah, so, hmm. I don't know. Just gonna have to buy one. Jeez, so, <sighs> later. I'll figure, I'll figure all that out later. <laughs> if you say so. Yeah. Have to hold you to that. Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel, and I'm Lucas, and we're back today to talk more about the gear we use for photo and video. Let's talk about something else. Yeah. With it being this podcast, it's got to be an old camera, right? Well, actually, no. We're going to talk about uh, everyone's favorite camera brand. Everyone's second favorite camera brand, Nikon. Of course. Mm -hmm. The first one. Still making cameras. Obviously being Fuji. Uh, As you well know, Nikon came out with the uh, ZFC, which was their Fuji competitor. They were like, what if we made an X-T30, but without film simulations? Mm Mm-hmm. And so they have this really cool retro-styled Nikon ZFC. Did you know you can get them in colors? I did not know that. I don't know if I, I don't know if this is like new. It says new, but you can <laughs> it's, get it's it. a good indication. You can get it in white, pink, aqua, silver, leather, like a dark brown, or like a tan. Huh. Do they look good? Like, are they cheesy looking or do they look good? They look incredible. Okay, yeah, that, that looks tasteful. Yeah. It's, it's not like they just spray painted the entire camera white or teal or whatever. It's like... It, it, it's a nice accent color that looks good well yeah it's like the leather wrap but it's a different color yeah i think they look super slick i like that i mean it's it's kind of like what people have been saying about things like phones for a while where everything's boring now you know it's all black it's mm-hmm. all gray whatever let's get things in colors it's more fun having colors so i'm talking about i mean i want one of these things so bad i want it in like white or leather Ugh. would you buy it over a Fuji. No, I wouldn't buy it over Fuji because it doesn't, it doesn't have film simulations. Yeah. It's just, it has, it's like, it's the Nikon thing and like it looks cool and it takes, and Nikon has what, whatever. Nikon's great. We all love Nikon. Can it shoot in classic chrome? No, can't shoot in classic chrome. Just can't do it. If you can't shoot in classic chrome, you're just not into it. I don't want it. Nope. Get out of here. That's what <laughs> I say. But these things are just, just, just under a thousand bucks. You can get mm, the body good. for a Whatever, nine fifty nine. And is it Z mount? It's Z mount. It's APS-C. It's a good little travel camera. I don't know if it's a good as good as like the XT thirty. Yeah. Which like Fuji really needs to come out with a new small camera. Yeah, they need an XT forty or an XT fifty. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, the XT thirty is just super super old. Man, this thing looks so slick. <laughs> the mint green looks really fun. 
Sorry. Anyway, I just wanted to talk about yeah, that for five neat. minutes. Speaking of camera colors, did you see that DSLR video shooter video where he painted all the camera gear? I did not. Uh, I think you've mentioned that once before, though. Yeah, that was a, that was a pretty cool video. He spray painted and otherwise painted some camera cages. And then at the end of the video, he painted an entire GH5 white. Oh, <laughs> man. I don't think I'm that brave, but it was pretty cool looking. I'm into that. I want more white camera gear. It's yeah. such a bad idea. Like, camera gear should be black, obviously. But... I mean, white cameras are, are pretty cool. It's funny how it works because I've been building up a camera rig recently and I want to get the cool colored stuff like, you know, Condor Blue makes those blue cables and all, I just got some orange USB-C cables. Those are pretty cool. But the problem is that if you're filming something where your camera might be in the shot, like if you're shooting an event or something, you don't really want a camera with all these bright colors on it. Yeah, with your pink cable running around the side, just yeah. really, really showing you off. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, for those, I want everything blacked out yeah but, but if i'm not doing something like that if i'm just on a normal shoot it's like i want my camera rig to look cool i want to have all mm-hmm. these you know these neat colors and stuff going yeah. on so some rgb yeah <laughs> yeah i want some rgb <laughs> on my camera rig. <laughs> be super slick i get i get it i mean that's why i bought the yellow brevetti bag mm-hmm. it's really discreet yeah <laughs> yeah you're blending in with that uh, exactly man white cameras it's the next big thing next we, big need, we thing. need to see it happen red started it well, I don't know if they started it, but red was red's in there. You seen everybody yeah, else? Yeah, follow, you can get the Komodo. I think you can get the Confinity in white too. Maybe Ooh. that's like a cinema camera Maybe thing. So. Maybe that's your reason to get a cinema camera. Mm-hmm. Well, that yeah, sure. And then I'd get those Viltrox uh, cine lenses uh-huh. and they come in white. Yeah. I'd be too cool. Yeah, that'd be great. Blasting in with my white camera rig. <laughs> Golly. This is not the first time we've talked about white camera gear I don't think and it it's is. about to become a thing. Yeah. I can feel it. I think you're right. Moving on from that. <laughs> what do we got? All right. I'm skipping over this first topic. We're going to come back to it because I have a legendary lens as a part of Lucas's legendary lens lineup. This segment is entitled, They Don't Make Them Like They Used To. This is a dramatic pause. <laughs> it's, it's very dramatic. Okay. This is about the Carl Zeiss Ultron 50mm 1.8. This lens is also circa... 1971, 1972 time frame. Okay. It is a Carl Zeiss lens. And if you look up anything about this lens, what you will learn is that most people who use it will claim that it is cleaner and sharper and has less, like, less chromatic aberration, more detail. Specifically, it's like the sharpness and the detail. They're like, look, I took a picture of leather or I took a picture of a fence. And it's like, or fur. And it's like, look at all the detail in the fur and like how much you can see every single strand. Mm. And like that matters so much for lenses because like lenses have a resolution to them. And it's like, how much detail can you resolve and how sharp it is? And most of the fanboys of this lens will say, you can't get the level of quality in modern lenses that you can get out of this bad boy. Interesting. And that this is the sharpest, most detailed, most perfect lens. From 1971. That's ever been made. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what that's what they say. Probably not true. Yeah, that's gonna... a pretty bold statement. <laughs> but you just you just can't know. You can't know until you get one and get your paws on one. So I got I got a couple links I'm gonna throw in the show notes about this thing. But uh, this is a uh, a pretty slick little 50 mil. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. I've I've looked up a few uh, few photos from it and geez, I mean it looks pretty good. <laughs> you can get some good pictures out of these bad boys. Yeah. What what mounts can you get this thing for? I think it originally came in uh, whatever the, the Zeiss mount was. So that would be... Oh, look at that. Uh, you can get it in an M42 screw. Oh, well, that's convenient. And then uh, also there was a proprietary breech lock. I-C-R-A-D-X. Breech lock? Yeah, Icarx mount. 
So that was like the early versions and then M42 screw up. So camera mounts used to be a lot cooler too. Mm-hmm. Like breech lock. That, sound, that sounds awesome. It sounds like a flintlock musket type thing. Yeah, it does. I forgot to write down how much this thing costs. So I'm looking on eBay here and I found one for $1,400. That's pretty high. It is the best lens ever made, Daniel. <laughs> so I don't know. That's it. I don't know. I feel like I should have done a little more history on this thing. I'm going to make these segments a little better in the future. Not that this one wasn't good. How dare you? But that's it. This has been Lucas's legendary lens lineup, and that was the Carl Zeiss Ultron 50mm 1.8. They don't make them like they used to. <laughs> Nicely done. Okay, tell me what happened to DP Review. This was a big surprise today. We randomly found out that in Amazon's recent round of layoffs, they decided to close dpreview.com. You're telling me Amazon owns dpreview.com? Apparently they do. And this is something that I had discovered a while back. I was looking around on their website and they had a note somewhere that said that Amazon owned them. And it's not new. I mean, I can't remember what year Amazon bought them. I feel like it's been at least five years. It may have been longer than that. And that was a big surprise. But yeah. Apparently, uh, they don't own them anymore because DP Review doesn't exist anymore. I don't know why they wouldn't just like spin it off, like why they wouldn't sell it or something. Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is that it's honestly easier to lay people off than it is to sell a company. As sad as that is, and as much as I don't like that, I think that's probably the case. I've done this on a much smaller scale. So I had a website and I ended up selling it to another business that I am also a part owner in, which is a little weird. Even just in that, which was a a much smaller thing, you've got this whole challenge of how do you value something like a website? Like, how do you actually know what it's worth? How do you find a buyer for it? Because you've got to find somebody who actually wants to own it. Mm -hmm. And then just the whole process of splitting it off. If those people that work for DP Review are Amazon employees, then suddenly you have to find a way to like separate all that from Amazon's operations. And so, I mean, it's it's legitimately quite a bit of work. So I guess you close it down and then maybe you sell the domain after that. Yeah, I mean, you could, you know, but... but, but after you fire, but it's like, what, what makes a website? What makes a company? You know, you've got all these people that have all these skills and make all this content, you know, is the website worth anything without them? Or is it really all in the name? You know, like all these things have value, but together it was so much more than the sum of its parts. And so it's kind of a bummer. I never really read too much DP review, but I watch almost all the stuff that Chris and Jordan do on, on their channel. And so like, I I love the reviews. I love how consistent they are. They cover a lot of stuff, a lot Mm -hmm. of stuff that not everyone covers. And I don't know, like, what's, what are they going to do? More on that in a moment. But it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't just the video stuff. They did have written reviews. I, right. I always trusted their reviews. And if I was looking at a camera and just kind of wanted to learn, you know, what is the general quality of this camera? I don't always want to watch a video. And so it was just this really reliable source for written content. You know, if you if you look at a bunch of reviews from the same place, then you kind of know that they're going to all be about the same level of quality mm-hmm. and all that. And so that was, that was always useful. There's only so many publications that are big enough to cover most things. And like you said, consistency. And so yeah. if you know that this publication always kind of favors the photo or the video or they have these certain biases you'd like know that going in and then you can get a really good comparison across the board yeah exactly they also had forums and that was something that i'm sure a lot of people are really going to miss you know there aren't that many good places online to discuss photography stuff discuss camera stuff there's discussion on twitter you know there's stuff on reddit but i mean if you try and get on reddit or facebook or something you know, the quality of discussion can go downhill pretty quickly, you know, and so Mm -hmm. finding good forums is, I feel like, pretty rare. 
and that's going to be a loss. Yeah, for sure. It's a it's a big bummer. It really is. So the good news is the uh, the video stuff isn't going anywhere. So Chris and Jordan, their video thing, they're going to be doing that as part of uh, Petapixel now. Oh, so yeah. they just like yeah, like Petapixel sell, basically sell agreed to buy that video show. Nice. And so they're going to be moving over there. Well, that's good. Um, I don't like even. I don't even know if there will be any interruption. Are they going to the still video. call it DP Review TV? I imagine not, but I don't know that for sure. Petapixel TV. Yeah, mm, I don't know. That might not sell well online. Yeah, but we'll see. I was really glad to see that there was there was a brief time online today when everybody was kind of wondering like, what are these guys going to do? Did we just lose like a really good camera YouTube channel? But it sounds mm-hmm. like it sounds like they're landing on their feet and they'll still be making stuff. That's good. Yeah. Bummer to see, though. I mean, yeah. even, you know, all the other stuff's a big loss. And I don't know. You know, the other thing is, like, I don't know what's going to happen to that content. I mean, there's Internet archives and stuff online. So hopefully some of that will still exist. But, you know, a lot of the stuff, it's like it could just disappear. That's the risk, right? I don't know. Maybe Amazon will just leave it up. Yeah. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. It's been around for 25 years. Really? Yeah. Golly. Started I feel in 1998. Like, I feel like they're going to sell it. They'll, like, they'll get everyone cleared out. And then someone is going to offer to buy, like Amazon won't, maybe won't go out to sell it, like. But someone's going to come in and say, "Hey, you're not using this. Let me buy the the website and all the content." Yeah, maybe so. I don't know. We'll see. I don't. Why? Why did Amazon buy them in the first place? The I don't affiliate know, links? I don't know. You know, I mean, it, it does kind of make sense as a business move. You know, you got this website that sells camera stuff, pretty valuable camera stuff, and. You know, investing in that and growing that could sell more things on Amazon, you know, sell more cameras and stuff. So, I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's some reasons to do it, but clearly a bummer. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about something that's not a bummer. Yeah. Sounds good. What do you got? Well, uh, I was perusing the Twitter earlier, and uh, this is probably not very timely based upon our release schedule. However, there was some S1H Mark II rumors, which I think we can both agree that's probably going to be the biggest camera release of 2023. I think there's a good chance of it. I mean, the S5 Mark II is already seeming like a really good video camera. When we did our best filmmaking cameras of 2023, I picked the S1H as one of my choices. You picked the BS1H. So even in its older iteration that has been updated in a few years, we still think it's good. So a Mark II could be pretty interesting. All right, let me blast through some of these rumored specifications. And so we're looking at possibly... 40, 47 to 50 megapixel sensor. So that makes sense. Full frame. And that means 8K uh, because you have to get over get over 40 megapixels in a 3 by 2 sensor in order to get that, that okay. horizontal width. That's like 78, whatever. So 47 to 50 megapixel full frame. Uh, looking at the obviously the phase detect autofocus system that's new from Panasonic, which has been pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're looking at possible, uh, like I said, 8K recording and also some DCI modes, so you can get that wider, uh, more correct, you know, 4K, 17 by 9 or whatever it is. And then we're looking at 24, 30, 48, all the, all the standard, you know, 60 frames per second codecs from from Panasonic. There's a rumor that it might do 8K60, which seems pretty intense. That'd be ambitious. You'd need a pretty high codec for that. Yeah, you, you sure would. And somebody posted a thing in reply that they think that they picked out what sensor they're going to use. Mm-hmm. And I can throw a link to this in the show notes, but it looks like, you know, this this sensor and the read speeds off of it are capable of reading out to uh, 120 frames per second at an 8K resolution and 240 frames per second at a 4K resolution. It's not saying that they're going to do it because as far as like I understand it, and maybe it depends on what processor you pair with the sensor itself. But if you have a 120 frame per second readout on an 8K sensor and you want autofocus, you got to use some of those frames for autofocus. So I would think like 8K 60 with autofocus autofocus which would still be really impressive yeah it would but i mean really the question is 
can the rest of the pipeline handle that? Because you've got to have a processor that can process that much data. You have to be able to write it out to some sort of device that can write out at that speed. I mean, I well, assume it would have S- to be CF Express. Yeah, I assume CF Express or an SSD can handle it, but it's just that's asking a lot. I mean, the battery life is probably going to be terrible in a mode like that. So. Oh, for sure. But I'm I mean, to see if they did it. Rumor is that it is going to be CF Express cards and SD cards. Uh, so I don't know if they're going to do like one and one or maybe like two and two or the combo slots maybe those combo slots i like the combo slots by sony those seem mm-hmm. pretty pretty good i'd like to see uh ssd recording like they did on the s5 mark ii can't imagine that they wouldn't do that yeah they're all about those ex- those external recording modes mm-hmm. um and it's you're supposed to be able to record 6k and 8k raw ProRes output that is pretty good but we've kind of established on this show that it's not all about resolution so why why do you think this is going to be the biggest camera of the year for one the s1h has a fan in it and so like, it has better cooling it can do more of the codex and they can push it farther because it has a better cooling system and panasonic has better video pro video features it's one of the S1H is one of the few cameras that's approved by Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, being able to shoot raw, having vlog built in, I mean, and then now adding this phase detect autofocus, I feels like this camera is going to be the complete package yeah. for someone who wants a hybrid mirrorless camera shaped video camera. Right, and you know we're seeing L mount start to get more lenses. I mean, it just it seems like a really good system. You know, you've got the option of getting an S5 II as a B cam or, you know, stepping up from the S5 II to something like this. But I mean, I agree. It just seems like Panasonic really cares about the video features. We think it's probably going to have that SSD recording. And we know that they have a lot of really good assist features and things Mm -hmm. like that. You get all the anamorphic modes, which is something that companies like Sony don't really do. And so I I agree. I think it's going to be a really interesting camera. And I mean, if they can come in under $4,000 on it, I think they'll sell a lot of them. I am curious if this sensor will come in as a 3x2 or a 4x3. I think my micro four thirds is just 4x3 by nature, and this is probably going to be a 3x2 sensor. Yeah. I just can't remember if the S1H is a 3x2 or a 4x3. Well, I mean, I just know that Panasonic cares a lot about the anamorphic stuff. I mean, they do the open gate recording a lot, you know, and have D-squeeze built in usually. And so I have to imagine that in a Mark II, they'd want to do the same thing. Yeah, so the S1H is a 3x2 sensor. And that matters just because, like, 4x3 for D-squeeze out to a 2 you're going to get closer to your scope resolution versus doing a three by two. It looks like this one H was three by two, so I would expect the same thing here. Which fine, you know, you still get that standard thirty-five millimeter, sixteen by nine or seventeen by nine. I just, it's going to have all the modes, and like it's going to be able to, it's going to basically be able to do all the codecs. And I feel like this one H pushed things so hard because it had the built-in fan and the cooling and all this stuff. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw like uncropped 8K 60 and yeah. like uncropped, you know, oversampled 4K 60 and all this, all this cool stuff. Well, I mean, if you think about it this way, the S5 II already has really impressive specs and that's like the low end camera compared to whatever this would be. The S5 II already looks good. This seems like it's going to be even better, more capable. I guess what I really want out of this, I mean, I want all the good normal codecs. I want uncropped modes and it would be great if some of the, all the 4k modes had all of the options in an oversample. The A1 is a really cool, great camera, but if you're going to shoot in 4k, it's line skipped and you can't get oversampled 4k or HQ 4k. And it kind of matters. Like you get a, such a boost in like resolution and video quality when you can get it in that oversampled or downsampled. So, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. It's rumored by end of March. We're talking about the Panasonic guy at the camera store, and he was like, "Man, I can't, I can't even sell you guys uh, an S5 Mark II because I'm backordered." Yeah, I think when this thing comes out, 
things sell out immediately mm-hmm. because the s1h how, how old is that camera now do you know the s1h is like three years old yeah no i mean it might be older than that so i mean at minimum people that currently have the s1h are going to be really interested in this because their camera is three years old they're probably ready for an update this september same, 2019 same lens mount probably same you know same all that you said september 2019 so that's three and a half years old now. yep it's the clear upgrade path from everyone who was on the s1h or the s1 mm-hmm. or the s5 mark one and it's probably going to ship for like four thousand dollars thirty five hundred dollars but i honestly think like this as the flagship video camera is going to be so killer well i can't wait to see it and we'll see if uh these predictions were right and whether those rumors were right but i think it's gonna be good all right one more uh one more announcement thing before we get into the main topic i guess i, I keep sticking things in front of this main topic because maybe i secretly don't want to talk about yeah, it yeah yeah that's what it sounds like yeah, you're just trying to put like it the, off the third week that we've pushed down the road we're <laughs> at an hour right <laughs> yeah so uh as your your favorite uh lens manufacturer cook of course yeah with, with I, I, that's, that's definitely in my budget yep it's one of your one of your top has released some new spherical cine lenses okay yep these are going to run you $34,000 a piece. Um, Sounds great. Unless, unless you want the wide one, that one's going to be 37000 I had been thinking about selling my car to buy one lens, so this should be yeah. good. Well, I mean, these, these may be it. So they're going to come in in your, I believe, in your standard PL mount. Okay. I haven't actually... So I'll what? also need to get a camera that's PL mount so I can use that lens. You can get them in PL or LPL. And LPL is the newer airy mount that locks. Okay. So locking PL. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty cool mount. Anyway... They're, you know, full frame. They go down to T1.4, which is pretty stinking fast. Yeah. They're all 104 millimeter front diameter. And yeah, you know, really clean, really nice new new cine lenses from Cook. You know, kind of full full range here. They got an 18, a 27, 35, and a 65. Cool. You looking at buying some of those yourself? Absolutely not. Definitely <laughs> not going to buy them. These are all going to... Most people are going to like rent these lenses. So, they're going to be rental house lenses. Okay, let me let me ask you. So, is this like cream of the crop for for Hollywood, or is this not even at that level? Like, is that does no, it go high? It goes higher than this, right? I mean, it just kind of depends. There are plenty of movies that are shot on Cook lenses and vintage Cook lenses, you know, Panavision and stuff like that. Uh, but I mean, Cook's one of, one of the like cine lens brands. Okay, and so uh, they are up there. Like, there are oh, Hollywood productions sure. using these. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. So on on a on a screen near you, yeah. Sometime soon. It's funny how we've got all these people using vintage lenses. You just said that a moment ago, and you're always talking about all these old lenses that are really good. Mm-hmm. But even with all that, there's still new stuff coming out that's apparently valuable enough to be sold for thirty five thousand dollars or or rented for a thousand dollars a day. Yeah. <laughs> but like that's the thing, right? Is you know maybe you're shooting in you know an 8K movie and you're gonna you know deliver it in 4K or whatever, and you, you have that that whole workflow and you yeah. need something that's really high resolution and just really clean glass. And then there's other times where like you still want to shoot it on Cook, but you want to shoot it on like the 1972 Cook because um, the glass in it has now faded to this slightly green tint, mm-hmm. and uh, you want to have that you know vintage styling. Yeah, man. Yeah, like you're, like you're wearing a pair of sunglasses. That's yeah. what I want my, my movie mm-hmm. to look like. Maybe maybe yeah. you do. I don't know. But like, it's nice that they're coming out with a newer, cleaner, better, faster. Yeah. But, and then the vintage is still there for you to rent from the place that's been renting them for the last 40 years. I'm, I'm glad you're tracking all the stuff that's that's very relevant to your personal filmmaking journey. Well, you know, I just, I'm trying to appeal to the masses here, Daniel. Uh-huh. We got a lot of listeners who are really into cook lenses yeah. and are definitely going to jump out here and spend you know, $200,000 on a new set. If you are listening to this podcast and you're going to buy one of these lenses, please at mention us on Twitter. <laughs> we would, I'm real curious. Yeah, I would love to hear that. 
Okay. Yep. The, put, ti- the time has come. We've got to talk about the main topic. Oh, geez. We put it off as long as we can. Yeah. So you released a new YouTube video recently. It's not It's not even that anymore. It's not recent anymore, but it is still a YouTube video that you have released. Yeah. The most recent video that I released yep. a month ago almost. Yep. yep. How, <laughs> many, how many views does it have as of this recording? Oh, you know? geez. It would be you, embar- you, know, you know the exact number. I don't. It would be embarrassing to say. <laughs> it has a, a number of views. Just a couple. Yeah. Just a couple. Pe- people don't care about my channel, and- which is fine. I don't want them to care. I want them to listen to this podcast. <laughs> and shockingly, this video was about the Fuji X-H2S. Oh, the camera of the year, 2022. Yeah. You don't it, say. It's only like the fifth video you've made about it. And all of your videos so far have been complaining about it. Okay. This one included. Okay, so I want I want to I clear the air here, Daniel. I have complained a lot about the X-H2S, and I just want to say... I, st- I love the camera. It kind of feels like you want a different camera it's, at this point. It's my favorite camera. I really enjoy the Codex. I love using it. I like Eterna. I don't like Classic Chrome. I don't like F-Log2. And I feel like it's the best value for money for a camera you can get. It's in APS-C, which, as we all know, is the true full frame. And it's just great. I mean, like, every time I'm like, okay, well, let's do a camera comparison. And, like, what's best for me? I basically always land at Fuji. It's just who you are. I just like, It's just in your blood. It's like that it takes really good pictures and it takes real, It has a really good video mm-hmm. and it's got really solid codecs. I can, I can now shoot raw. It's got a stacked sensor. I don't know. X-H2S is pretty great. So if all that's true, then why, why are you making this video about the X-H2 autofocus? It could be better. It that's my be problem. Better. And I'm not even talking about, like, Oh, it doesn't track faces really good. It does. I shot this whole video with autofocus on with and and face tracking. Didn't lose me a single time. Yeah. All like the face tracking, the autofocus, the autofocus is fine. The tracking modes are pretty decent. It's good. Like it's it's good for most of the the, the things you might use it for. It's not class leading. No, absolutely like, not. I do feel like Sony autofocus is better. I do think it was a little embarrassing that Panasonic came in and was like, here's our first hybrid uh, autofocus system, and it's better than Fuji. Yeah. That's a little that's, embarrassing. It's a little awkward. Yeah. But that's not even what I'm talking about here. This video is about all the things that are they're all related to the focus system, but they're not. Okay. So, like, I don't want to necessarily get into the detail, but also I kind of want to just, like, talk about a lot of this. Well, the video's out there if people want to watch it before they listen to this segment. But Like, the Focus Clutch, for instance. Fuji basically has gotten gone away from their clutch designs, but there are four or five Fuji lenses that have a Focus Clutch on mm-hmm. it. And it's kind of cool because you can just, like, slide the clutch back, and then you can be in manual focus. And every Fuji camera that has ever existed... You just slide it back in your manual focus, and that's how it works. Yeah. And on the X-H2S, in photo mode only, it doesn't work. You have to be in autofocus on the lens, change the mode to manual, and then slide the clutch back to be in manual. Which is really annoying because it's this whole extra step. Yeah. And then if you slide the clutch back to be in autofocus, you can't change the setting to be in manual. Ugh. Because it's it, and so like you have to like put it back in manual and then change the setting and then slide it back or maybe have that backwards. I think you can't change the setting in manual, so you have to like slide it back into autofocus and then change it. <laughs> it's the stupidest thing. And I'm like, why doesn't this work like every other Fuji camera? And, and, and you said this is only in photo mode. Only in photo mode. I mean, yeah. that tells you that it's it's got to be a bug, right? It's like got to be, but like they still haven't fixed it, and they're on three point oh one. And yeah. I'm like, come on, guys, just. Like a lot of us still like these, these like the 35 millimeter and the 23 millimeter mm-hmm. 1.4, you know, 10 year old lenses. Yeah. They're great. Yeah. I love my 23. And it's just really frustrating. They haven't even replaced the 16 1.4. If you want to, I don't know, like a standard 24, you know, millimeter full frame equivalent 
focal length. There's the 16 2.8 and the 16 1.4, and then there's the zooms. And like they had, they they came out with a new 18 1.4 that has a new linear motor and the new design and all this stuff. But they haven't replaced the 16. So the current version of the 16 still has the focus clutch and yeah. still has this problem. Yeah, and it just doesn't work on that. Like it works, but it has this extra extra step. Yeah, it's and like you have to learn the muscle memory of like. I got to change the setting and move the focus clutch. That's annoying. Yeah. And it's like, there's all these like little stupid things. And I just, it'd be great to see them like focus on fixing those. And I know they're like busy or whatever and probably understaffed. And I'm just over here complaining and I love the camera, but like, it's kind of a problem. Yeah. So what else is there besides the, because I mean, people may not have a focus clutch lens, but I don't have any that have that, but what what would affect me? Okay. Well, um, there was one that came up in the comments that I didn't even know about. And this person is trying to use two different flash sync settings. And so they're like, okay, C1 will be this one. C2 will be this one. You can't save flash sync settings between custom modes. So it just it, it always just uses whatever you have set, no yeah. matter what custom yeah. mode. Yeah, so you like sync. have to go change it. So like you like change your custom mode, then you have to go change your flash sync setting. Yeah, that's annoying. Yeah. And it's like you gave me seven custom modes. Let me let me configure those for everything. Yeah. Because that's like that's the cool advantage. I mean, no other camera has seven custom modes that I know of. Most yeah. of them cap out at like three. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, let me use that to its full potential. That was like the whole thing too of them going with the PSAM. It's like yeah, that's exactly. one of the advantages that you can get all those custom modes. And they do some things with the custom modes that I think are really cool. Like the auto update is a neat feature. But yeah, or you can like hit a, assign a button to recall C1 yeah. at any time. That's cool. It is cool. But they need to need to go that extra mile and make it make it really do everything. So like whenever you're in a fo- in photo mode, you can hit the red record button and mm-hmm. it will just start recording with all the settings you currently have, but with auto shutter speed, I think. So that like you're in a pinch and you're like, oh, I got to get this video right now. Mm-hmm. You can uh, like emergency hit record and it'll just start recording. Oh, that's cool. And uh, some people don't necessarily want that. They want to be able to jump into the video settings. So if you set C1 to be your vi- like your primary video mode, you could maybe like set the record button to a C1 to pull that mode. Oh, then you can just yeah. like tap that one and then tap the shutter. That'd be cool. And now you're in like a full video setting suite of like my shutter speed's already set to 180 yeah. and all this stuff. So I think that's a pretty cool option. Yeah. That's great. You can do that. But it's like there's still all these little stupid things that aren't there. But this is not really related. But here, here's what I want custom modes to support. I want to be able to go in. And for a custom mode, I want to be able to say which, well, I guess it'd be, this would be like camera wide. It's not really tied to a specific custom mode, but I want to be able to say which settings are affected by the custom mode and which aren't. And my use case for that is that like when we go shoot events, I want to be able to set up my my resolution and shutter speed and all that for a couple of different options. You know, like I want to do like 4K 60 and 6K 30 and whatever else. But what I really want is to be able to say something like white balance isn't affected by what I pick on the custom. Like mode. if there was a toggle that was, you know, for white balance where you could say global or custom, yes, custom exactly. mode. I would love that because then like white balance is the perfect example. I may not know what I want to use until I get to the event or it might change depending on like what room I'm in or something. And it would be really cool if I could just set that at any time and not have to worry about it changing if I switch to a different custom. It has been extremely annoying to have to go in and change the the white balance and the codec for like four custom settings. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, we're going to shoot this thing. Well, the last thing we did was an F log at like 700 megabits per second. This one's only going to be in, you know, an Rec 709 profile at you know, 150 or 200. And it's like, well, now I got to change it for like this one and this one and this one. And then I got to set my Y balance. And it's like, it'd be cool if you could set those to global. Yeah. I get why it's not that way. And like the current configuration is probably the better default, but I don't know. know, It'd be be a neat feature to have. But back on this autofocus thing, 
So one of the things from your video that stood out to me was the AF focus mode with tapping on the screen, because I feel like that bites me a lot. So can you yeah. can I explain that one a little that, bit? That's been kind of annoying. So this is another photo thing. In video, at least on the other Fuji cameras that I've used, you can be in like a autofocus multi. And basically it's just like, let the camera figure out what it wants to focus on and then it'll focus on it. And if you tapped the screen, it would switch to single point autofocus. And there was no way to get back to multi without stopping recording and then mm. going into the settings and then changing it back to multi. <laughs> that's just that's just a Fuji problem. I didn't even talk about this here. And the thing you're talking about is in photo mode. And in photo mode, if you are set to wide tracking, it may also be in setting it to all. But like there's all, wide, zone, and single. And if you have it set to multi, you can touch on the screen and it will track the object that you touch, which mm -hmm. is cool. There's not an obvious way to get out of this. You can either, actually, I don't even think you can have press the shutter. You can hit the back button or you can tap the screen to like get out of that mode. And I have been in situations where I've accidentally activated that mode and then like I'm stuck and I can't change things. What's mostly annoying here is that if you're continuously autofocusing on the Fuji camera, you can't change any setting that is not associated with a dial. And so that means if you tap the back of the screen and you go into a, like a continuously autofocusing mode, or if you half press the shutter or any other like, you know, the camera is now in focusing mode. Or like I mean, you're recording video. That's another example. Like you're actively focusing and recording video. You can scroll the wheel to change your ISO. Not your ISO, sorry. You can scroll the wheel to change your shutter speed. Yeah, you're not using the dial on for ISO. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure. You can scroll the wheel to change your your um, aperture and or your, your EV, your exposure. You can't change your ISO. The ISO's on a button. Yeah. And because you can't set the ISO to a dial, then you can you're like you're just stuck. You're like, now okay, I've set everything up, tapped the screen, I'm autofocusing. Oh, I need to bump my ISO by a little bit. Uh cancel everything, change the ISO, and then do it again. Well, like you said, I've had it happen by accident where I didn't realize that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And then it 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 makes it feel like the camera's locked up. Yeah, it does. It's like you're like you hit you can hit any or a variety of buttons. You hit like the, you know, preview button or like these, you know, you're hitting your shortcuts to like go into white balance mode. And yeah. Like, it's just not working. And yeah. You don't know why. Yeah. And the, and the camera doesn't tell you anything about that and mm -hmm. say this is why you can't do it because they never tell you anything that you just have to know. And and this is a problem with a lot of the other stuff, too, where you just have to know that it works that way. It's yeah. Really no, there's annoying. there's tons of things in the menu where it, one setting will disable another setting. Yeah. And like it's totally valid and totally obvious that those settings should be disabled. Mm -hmm. For instance, like the zone, the zone autofocus stuff, you can't change uh, you can't change from 117 to 425 points if you're in wide tracking. It just forces it to 117. And like, it's not obvious that it's locked out. The one that always gets me is you can't change the photometry whenever you're in face detect or animal detect. And like, you have no idea why. You're just like pressing your button to do the photometry range and it's not working. And like, you forgot that you were in face detect. And that's really annoying because for like, if I'm taking pictures, what I want to do is be in AFC and I want the photometry to just be in whatever I, whatever I set it to be. And then if all of a sudden I'm taking a picture of a person like, oh, I took a picture of this squirrel and this landscape and this tree and this waterfall. And now I'm going to take a picture of the person I'm with and I want to be in face detect, but I don't want to have to toggle face detect. It would be great if like everything I shot before I could do in, you know, whatever photometry mode I wanted, whether mm -hmm. that be like, you know, the full scene or point or whatever. And then whenever it started face detecting, it would uh, set the photometry based upon yeah. the person's face. But it doesn't do that. It doesn't do it automatically. It just locks you out of mm -hmm. the photometry mode. Well, and it, it makes it slow, too, because let's say you're taking pictures and you want to change the photometry. Your your process is basically, let me hit the button to try and change photometry. Oh, it's locked out. I can't do that. I guess I'll go back and change turn face detect off 
and then I can go back and change what I was trying to change. So it's like it slows you down in the process. What happens to me more often than not is that I'm like, I go to press photometry and I go, oh, crud, I have, I have face detect on. I'll click the face detect button and realize that I actually had animal detect on and it switches it to face detect. Mm-hmm. Then I have to hit it again and then it turns face detect to like a different mode. Then I have to hit it again and then it turns it off because like sometimes those toggles get screwed up. And so and, like I end up hitting it like two or three times just to get that done. And then I still have to well, change and, my and, photometry. And there are some issues where you can get stuck in the subject detection modes mm-hmm. too. And, and it, the whole thing, just like think about that situation. You're trying to capture a moment. You're trying to take a picture. You're like, hold on, like, let me fix this real quick. And you're hitting all these buttons on your camera. And like, it's just not a good feeling. No, it's it's annoying. And it's like, it doesn't have to be this way. We could fix these things. And like for the settings that lock out, it's like, what if, I don't know, like it just told you at the bottom, like you can't change this because of this setting. You know, or like like on the photometry thing, what if it said, this is grayed out because face detect is on. And then what if it gave you two options where you could cancel or you could hit okay, like you could say, do you want to turn face detect off? Man, wouldn't that be great? And then it could just turn it off right there. And then you'd be able to change the setting. That's if you, It just feels like there's so many little fit and finish things like this. Like It's just kind of frustrating. It feels like if they took the time to really fix all these bugs and focus on the user experience, it could be so much better than it is, like you're saying. Yeah, for and sure. And I, I know that companies are always short on time on this stuff. And, you know, there's a big focus on like just ship it and then we'll update it later and all that. But I'd just like to see a little bit more attention to detail on some of that stuff. And it, it really feels like they could get at that extra like five or 10 percent of quality, you know, in, in terms of the software. It's frustrating that like in owning my X-T3, I felt like there was a level of polish on that camera that was really good. And I, it almost felt like they thought of a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was I mean, it felt very complete. And then upgrading to X-H2S, I just it seems like it's not there. Like the camera body itself is good. I'm having like a screen wobble issue where the hinge is loose and I need to like call that into warranty and have them fix it. But like the software, it's just, it just feels like it's not there. And we're on firmware 3.01 and it's still, still not fixed. Yeah. And it's like, you kind of, you kind of start losing hope after a while on yeah. some of this stuff. It's like, are we ever going to be able to put ISO on a dial? Are they ever going to fix some of these weird little bugs? I don't know. There would be rejoicing in the streets if they allowed you to put ISO on a dial. Yeah. And it, doesn't that sound simple? Like, like it's, it why seems would like you, it should be really Why easy. would you not? It's on a dial on all their other cameras. Yeah. And the aperture's already on the ring. And you just set the thing, the thing. I don't get it. Yeah. It's stupid. It is. It's very weird. <sighs> okay. One more thing on this. And that's the... And I feel like I've belabored, I've belabored this so much in the video and now we're doing it here. And like, I think I'm, I think I'm going to be done complaining about this. That's not true. <laughs> yeah, that's not true. That's not true. When you're... If you're uh, in manual focus... No, that's not true. If you're in autofocus continuous and you're focusing, uh, you can turn on manual focus override, which I guess is like the exact opposite of doing back button autofocus. You could be in manual and then you could press the, the AF button to be overriding into continuous. Yeah. But yeah. you can do it the other way. You can mm-hmm. be in continuous and then you can turn the manual focus. And this is an actual setting that's in the menu. Yeah. Like you're choosing to, to do it that way. Yeah, autofocus override. Mm-hmm. So you can be in autofo- autofocus continuous and then you turn the manual focus wheel and when you do that, it will override into manual focus, right. which is a nice to be able to like, oh, in a pinch, I need to just start manually focusing. Love it. Great setting. Yeah. Sounds good. If if you do that, it doesn't hold the setting. It just goes back into continuous. Yeah. It's 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 a it's basically a second. Like I'm not exaggerating. It, like one second. If you manual focus and you let go of the wheel for one second it will start continuously focusing again. And this was a huge problem for me whenever I was taking a lot of pictures with a camera because I'm like, oh, I just need to override manual focus. And I start like, because like I'm taking a picture of a landscape or something yeah. really quick. And I don't want to have to like switch it into manual. And so I'm like, 
okay, focus on the trees, focus on the trees. All right, reframing and I'm in autofocus again. So I have to like get to where I need it to be and then I'm just kind of like feathering the yeah, focus like wheel a little, a little bit, bit just uh, to keep it in that mode while I try to reframe and then I let go and then I have to hit the button before it goes back into continuous. <sighs> it seems like once you had the shutter button half pressed, it should stop. If you, at that point, if you start manual focusing, it should not go back to continuous autofocus. I just, I want to be able to like, when I turn that wheel, it's in manual focus until I hit the shutter again. Yeah. And like, it's not going to go back into AFC on its own unless I push it back into AFC. And uh, like, I just don't get it. I agree. That seems weird to me. I think what's happening is they felt like there was a scenario where you don't have your finger on the shutter button at all and it's doing autofocus continuous. And then maybe you make some manual focus adjustments. And then after that point, you do half shutter press. And I think they thought, well, at that point, probably what you want is for it to start doing the autofocus stuff, like however the shutter button's set. Mm -hmm. You can set the half press to, to do the autofocus. And so I think it's getting stuck in a weird state where like you have the shutter button half pressed and you start doing that manual focus thing mm -hmm. and it immediately starts autofocusing again. But this is not the way it should work. It's bad. Yeah. I love the camera. I just... I want them to fix some of this stuff. Yeah, I agree. I like mine a lot too. I do not regret buying it at all. I expect to be using it for a long time, but I just feel like between little software things like this and some other stuff I've discovered recently with trying to rig it out, it's just specs wise and features wise, it's so close to being a really, really good video camera. And I, I think it is. I mean, I, I like I said, I love using it, but it just feels like it's missing like a little bit of that fit and finish that would make it an ideal cinema camera. Yeah. And it makes me want Fuji want to focus more on like the cinema camera use cases and making this stuff just dead on reliable, like not having all these little bugs, being able to rig it out effectively. Like that's what I want to see. Like I want something with XH2S specs that also has that extra level of polish. It's just so close. And it's not even it's not even so much hardware stuff. Maybe they could release a dummy battery that fits yeah. through the freaking battery door. That, that'd be nice. Yeah. Well, how novel. Yeah. And like, I don't know, just like let us put the ISO on the dial, mm -hmm. you know, fix some of the autofocus stuff. Yep. You know, it's it's just a bunch of little things. Uh, maybe can you give a shutter angle? I'm asking for too much. <laughs> they, they give you one over 48, which most cameras don't. Yeah. You know, all these all these plebes have to shoot at one over 50. <laughs> I'm over here shooting at one over 48. Not a big deal. It's a pretty big deal. <laughs> But still, I know it's like they're like, look at this cool cinema camera. Shoot yep. your movies with it, blah blah blah. But they're they like got ninety five percent there, mm -hmm. and it's like we need that extra five percent. Yeah. That's like where where's my time code input? Exactly. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Like, give us some time code options. We need that last little piece, that last little bit. And I don't know. Maybe maybe it's coming. Maybe they're working on it. Probably won't know. Maybe uh, like the R8 and the upcoming A7C and A4 will kind of light a fire under them on the software side. And I mean, this is going to be their flagship video camera for the next probably couple of years. Maybe They're so. usually on like a three year cycle for their releases. But what if they came out with a box camera version of the X-H2S? Golly. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just thinking about it. That'd be real tempting, man. I, there's no way I could do it. I could do it. Like I already have one, but like the concept of like, what if I sold my X-T3 and my X-H2S and then I got an X-T5 for all my photo stuff and then I had the box camera for all my video stuff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's not going to happen. No, but I, it really should. And, and Fuji makes all these cinema camera lenses. You know, they make yep. those big box lenses that mm -hmm. you see at you know, mm -hmm. football games and stuff. And it's like they know something about the industry 
And the XH2S is so good in terms of the sensor yeah. and the specs and all that, but it's just missing a few little things. Well, like they make broadcast stuff. Yeah. And then they make those MZ or MKZ series lenses that mount on Fuji and a few other things. Right. But they're not like DZO or, you know, Viltrox or I'm not going to, I shouldn't say those two in the same breath as no. <laughs> Sigma, uh, as Cook um, or like Suri where, you know, it's, you know, these are $5,000 lenses yeah, that are yeah. cinema focused or whatever. I know they're not on that level, but it still feels like they know something about that industry. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. It seems like they could, they could do a little better than they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. We just, we just, we just want to see that. You know, maybe, maybe if more people switch to Fuji and that market share would push forward. Yeah. All right, everybody. Can hope. I just need all of you guys to switch to Fuji real quick. And uh, maybe maybe I'll get the update that I need on the software. <laughs> just got to keep making those YouTube videos, man. Find more stuff to complain about. That's what it is. I just need to keep complaining. That'll that'll fix it. Yeah, yeah. That that has fixed a lot of things on the internet. Uh-huh. It's more complaining. <laughs> yep. It's been, <laughs> so we got where we are. Yeah. In this perfectly fixed society. Yeah. Well, maybe your next YouTube video about the XH2S could be something positive. It's not going to be positive. <laughs> I've already thought it through. I'm going to make a video on uh, Asus transforms and how that uh, Dimension Resolve still doesn't support uh, F-Log2. Oh, no. And part of that is because Fuji isn't a part of the Asus Alliance. <laughs> And so they haven't like coordinated their codecs and the transforms and stuff. And so you can't really do pro video workflows with yeah. XH2S because you don't have transform stuff there. And then I'm going to talk about like, you know, there's, I've, I've read a lot of white papers, Daniel. <laughs> Too many. Like I've been Too looking, many, I've been looking say. at like log white papers for like V log and like Canon C logs and, and area, area Alexa log profiles and all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, which one's the closest to the F log two profile and gives you like the most accurate reproduction for the gamma and blah, blah, blah. And then I'm just going to share this with the world so that we can all kind of figure a work around. And if we need to do ASUS workflows or color managed workflows with XH2S, because it's honestly frustrating. The XH2S has really good codecs. If you shoot in like the 320 or the, the 740, whatever codec stuff, or you shoot in ProRes, it's pretty good. I mean, like you can really push it around. You get a lot of information and it would be nice to like have that really solid footage to work with on projects where you have other types of cameras and then you can do all your color matching and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I can see the value in it. We don't ever really see people talking about this kind of stuff, but that's kind of another thing where it's like Fuji just needs to go a little bit farther to support these workflows if they want their cameras to be taken seriously as cinema cameras. I think what most people are doing, and I might be getting this mixed up with a different one. Uh, is they're using something like Film Convert in, which is a plugin for Resolve yeah. along with other things. I've heard of it. And then Film Convert has everything built into it to do an F-Log2 conversion. I see. And so you can use Film Convert as your color management workflow type thing as far as like the mm. back end. But you still kind of, I don't know. I want a process where it's like, okay, here's the X-T3 and here's the X-H2 and here's an A7S3 or whatever. Or like here's a bunch of different cameras, GoPros, whatever. And then I want to transform all of them into a single color space. Yeah. Like Asus or whatever. Then do all migrating there and then transfer it from that to Rec. 709 Gamma 2.2 or 2.4. And the fact that I can't go into that intermediate color space with the X-H2S is really annoying. Maybe that's something they can change. I mean, they could join that alliance. They could you yeah. know, they could contribute the stuff that Resolve needs to support it. Yeah, I mean, it, it just feels like it's a matter of collaboration. It's like, hey, yeah. Resolve, we know that everyone uses you for color. We love color because we're Fuji. Why don't we get together and like, I don't know, figure this out. Oh, here's a film simulation profile for Classic Chrome that you can just stick and resolve. Just, oh, man. just you know, pay us licensing fees for it or something. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe they can figure it out. Yeah. Or maybe they could like do that before they release the freaking camera. Yeah. Not like 
wait for Resolve to figure it out with, you know, 19 version mm-hmm. in next year. Anyways, yeah. as you can see, I have quite a bit of stuff to say yeah. on this topic. Yeah, you sound very opinionated about <sighs> it. <laughs> yeah, so that's 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 my next video sometime this okay. summer. Putting Fuji on blast. Golly, I still love it. I'm still a, still a fanboy. <laughs> this is still the Fuji cast. You love it. You just want it to be as good as it can be. That's I I, I, I yep. <laughs> I hate on it because I love it. Mm-hmm. I just want I just want them to do better. Sure. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to trying to you know, motivate them. <laughs> if you say so. <sighs> tell me. Okay. Tell me about this stupid Benro thing. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let's not spend too much time on this, but just to kind of end things on maybe a more positive or interesting note here. This okay. Sorry. A, not stupid. Okay. Go. <laughs> yeah. This is a. I don't know if it's stupid or not. And that's what we're going to talk about. This is a new tripod that's on Kickstarter. And it has 30 days left in the campaign as of this recording, mm-hmm. and it has raised over $1.3 million. So somebody thinks it's good. But this is a new travel tripod that they're uh, that they're making, and it has some interesting features. Two of the things that stand out, one is more normal than the other. One is that it has a ball head, which is more of like a photo tripod feature. You can loosen the one thing and then move it in any direction. I cannot believe that this has $1.3 million pledged out of a $50,000 goal. Yeah, man. I know you're describing it, but holy cow. Yeah, yeah. So it has a ball head, but one cool thing about that ball head is that you can lock the roll axis. So you can move this little lever and make it so that it can't tilt left or right. I think that's a really cool feature because we were doing a shoot the other day, uh, you know, a video shoot, and I was trying to use your tripod to set a camera, and you have a ball head on your tripod. Sure do. And, you know, I wanted to uh, I wanted to change the tilt of the camera, but as soon as I did that, the camera started rolling left and right because the ball mm-hmm, head moves mm-hmm. in any direction. It's like, great, now I've got to try and straighten this thing up before yeah. I tighten it. Yep, yep. Super annoying. I like video tripod heads where, the, you know, they pan and tilt, you know, yeah, and get those I, settings. I prefer a fluid head over anything else, uh, just just like the next guy, but mm. this is mine. But this one lets you do both. Shoot, Pretty man. Cool. Uh, so that, that's a small feature. The big feature that it has is that you can add all these motorized accessories to it. So it has a little battery thing that you can add onto it that kind of like clamps onto the tripod. And then it has motors in the legs. And so you can put this tripod on a surface that is not level. Like you can put it on like the side of a mountain and then you press a button and the motors move the lengths of the legs so that it levels out the tripod. That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. You know, it's one of those things where I think about it and I'm like, how much weight is this adding to it? How reliable is that mechanism? Is that going to break? You know, like like th- I, those are things I worry about. But just in terms of functionality, seems super cool. The lightweight version weighs 2.7 pounds, and the heavy-duty version weighs 3.6 pounds. That doesn't sound that bad. And those can hold, uh, I guess the heavy version can hold 23 pounds of capacity. That's pretty good. Sorry, sorry. That's the light version. The heavy version can hold 44.1 pounds. That is about as much as you could possibly need. Yeah, so, that's pretty good. So I guess weight weight capacity, and, and like the weight of those doesn't sound that bad. Like the 2.7 pounds, it's got to be heavier than like a Peak Design travel tripod or something. But Oh, certainly. Maybe they're using like carbon fiber or something. Yeah, they probably are. I spent so much time looking at this product page trying to figure out what the deal is with the ball head on this. Mm-hmm. Because the obvious thing that everyone is thinking is like when you hear about this is, well, it has a ball head on it. What if the camera's not straight on the tripod? Well, it doesn't matter if you level the legs yep. because it's like the camera's not straight. And But like you said, it has a locking thing where it's like 
you can just easily guide it in and then lock it in place so that the camera body is perfectly level with the tripod body. And I think that's what the lock does. It's not like you yeah, can lock it in it. any position. It's like you can lock it so that it is perfectly upright. Well, you could like cattywampus it if you need to and use it like a normal ball head, but sure. there's always the option to go back to neutral. Yeah. Which I think is critical for this in order yeah. for this leg contraption they, they to had, do what it's going to do. Yeah, they had to build that feature for the leg thing to work. Can Do you think the leg thing can do uh, some of that slide pod stuff? Because that's what I want. I want to <laughs> have this, cool. but the center pole will just like do the slide pod rise Ooh. deal. Ooh. That be, yeah. That'd be neat. My, my guess is no. You know, it could be a firmware thing where maybe maybe they could release a firmware update that lets you do it like while the camera is recording. But it's generally more expensive to make mechanisms that can do that kind of stuff the way you would need it to for a video because like there can't be any backlash. You don't want it to jerk at all while it's doing it. Whereas if you're just trying to get something into a position, that doesn't have to be quite as graceful. So my guess is that if they haven't designed for that, it probably won't be able to do it. But I don't know for sure. I think I just need a slide pod. You know what? That's that's what I've landed on this. I think so. This is a really cool auto-leveling tripod, but I'd rather have a slide pod. <laughs> I don't know about those things. I, I know Jesse Driftwood has one, and he made a video about it. Did you ever, did you ever watch this video? Uh, like 100 years ago. Yeah, he, he made a video where he was basically like, this thing is terrible, you shouldn't buy it, but also I use it all the time. I love it. It's so cool. You can just like make it slide and stuff. Mm. It's, it's, oh, no, it's pretty neat. I think it's basically like the camera motion version of that Tamron 1770 where I think you would get it and you'd just be mad at it the whole time, oh, but you yeah. would still use it a lot. Like, oh, I hate this thing. It's so dumb, but there's not another equivalent product and it's so cool. Yeah. I've had that feeling about a lot of different stuff <laughs> where you just like love, hate it. And I think you're right though, that that Tamron 1770 is just, that's the king of the list. Golly. Yep. I really don't like that. I like that lens. <laughs> but this tripod though, I think it's pretty cool. Clearly, a lot of people are interested in it. 1.3 million funded. thought it was interesting that Benro's doing a Kickstarter. I mean, they you can buy their stuff in camera stores. You know, it doesn't seem like they're struggling to to make ends meet. But I guess Kickstarter is a good way for them to judge interest in something like this. And I mean, it that's seems what, like there is interest. That's what Peak Design does as well. It's like, oh, we want to build this thing or make a new bag or whatever. And it's going to require new tools or new manufacturing capabilities. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there's this capital investment thing where they're like, if I can we can get over the hump and we knew how many we needed we can make it happen yeah like i was listening to cortex and they're talking about this new notepad thing that they made and part of the problem is that they can't go to the manufacturer and say we promise that we're going to order whatever fifty thousand of these in the next two years because then they're on the hook and if they don't sell them they just have a bunch of these yeah. lying around yeah, who needs fifty thousand notebooks and because it's it's a scale thing like you can go to a, a product manufacturer and say like will you make this and they're like well, we can, but we'd have to buy this new tool mm-hmm. or do we implement this new process. And that's going to have a capital cost. And we can only do it if you buy this many. And I think for established companies, like you see this all the time, yeah. all, they can, Kickstarter allows them to like get the backing and go to these manufacturers and say, look, we have committed that we're going to sell 5,000 of these things and we're going to make 2 million bucks. Yeah. And then they can make it happen. And so I, I bet that's what's, hap- that's what's happening here. Because like nothing like this has existed before. And so there probably is some sort of new manufacturer technology they're having to implement. There's new mm. machines and all that stuff. So Yeah. I don't know. Pretty neat. I don't think I'll get one. I would, I'd be interested in the ball head. I don't think I'll get the tripod. I have no I have no desire for this thing. But I, I, w- I, can, I can see the use, though. You know, if you're a, a traveling photographer, then mm-hmm. maybe this saves you a few moments. So yeah, maybe. Neat. I don't know. If I had uh, if I had an extra three hundred fifty dollars lying around, or five hundred dollars lying around, and I wanted to spend it on a tripod, I feel like I would just buy a really good fluid head. Yeah. But that's because I don't need. I don't feel like I need this. You just need a slide pod. Yeah, that's what I need. A slide <laughs> pod. That'd be cool. Yeah, I need to like sliding things, pushes. 
polls. Hmm. All right. I'm done thinking about that. Next week on the Camera Gear Podcast, we'll see if you bought an <laughs> iPad or a Slide Pod. It's going to be neither one. The joke that I was going to make was this has been the sl- Slide Pod Podcast. <laughs> the Slide Podcast. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Beat be me to it. Okay. That's it. That's it. I'm done. Yeah. Can't talk about anything else. We're going to save all our other topics for next week. I think you're right. That's it for the show today. Thanks for listening, and we'd encourage you to rate the show on iTunes and tell a friend, but only if you enjoyed it. You can find out more about us on our website at cameragearpodcast.com. We'll be back with more next week.